Welcome back to Poet in Bangkok. I'm Colin Chaney. And I'm Donald Quist. Every episode, we hear the stories of authors, filmmakers, illustrators, dancers, and musicians. And Donald and I continue to try to piece together a larger story about making art in Thailand during our New World Order of UFOs crashing to Earth, invasive Martian flowers, and the continuing crisis facing the Harbinger mission up there on Mars. On today's podcast, you'll hear an interview with Paul Spurrier, the writer and director of the eerie and affecting Thai language film The Forest, debuting this week here in Bangkok. Paul talks about the experience of filming in the northeastern province of Isan and how the forest explores a part of Thailand seldom seen by Westerners and often regarded as a bit of a foreign country by Bangkokians. Paul recounts his experience as a child actor in Britain and tells us the story of how he became proprietor of Bangkok's smallest cinema, the Freeze Green Club. He talks about the fascinating and surreal juxtapositions that seem to define contemporary Bangkok and explains why he sort of misses the naive way he once saw the city. He talks about the crisis facing the Thai film industry, a crisis of threats foreign and domestic, and he explains how his experience making promotional films for Pizza Hut and Britain's Ministry of Defense has prepared him exceedingly well for making propaganda films for our future Martian overlords. If you are new to Poet in Bangkok, uh, welcome. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate it. We hope you'll enjoy getting a glimpse into the world of making art here in the Kingdom of Smiles. It probably is a good idea to go back and listen to some of our earlier episodes from first season. Yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah. It did become uh, less of a podcast about <laughs> about making art uh, and during a time of military dictatorship and yeah. censorship, and a little bit more of a podcast about weird the, space the harbinger missions yeah. <laughs> to mars the appearance of the murder by the sky transmissions yeah. and and of course the, the the whales the whales the crashing of the weird martian ufos into the atmosphere last spring yeah if you're one of our returning listeners thanks for coming back after the summer break hope it was awesome and the jersey shore was everything that you <laughs> hoped it would be uh you'll remember that we recorded many of last season's episodes at the freeze green club interviewing paul spurrier there seemed like the perfect way to kick off this second season we thought we should say right up front while we'll still be talking with Thai artists and thinkers this season, we're also going to be chatting with a few more foreigners about making art in Thailand. We still have a, a real fascination with Thai art and excited to share what we learn uh, with listeners be beyond the bounds um, of the kingdom. But honestly, <laughs> yeah. with everything that's been happening, the, the collective terror and then the relief and then the anxiety following the, the whales crashing into Earth last spring <laughs> and the surreality of this, how do I put it? This uneasily happy Thailand yeah. uh, and, the, and, the, and the madness surrounding politics and, and racial violence and environmental crisis back in the U.S. With everything that's been happening, we felt like on our podcast, we needed to dig into some of these more, I guess, sort of more fundamental questions about making art and about being an engaged citizen of a place, citizen of the uh, citizen of the world, and about how to be happy. I guess being happy, being in a place, being making art in that place. Yeah, being happy. I've been thinking a lot uh, about that. Um, 
Yeah, I have a lot more questions about this place and what it means to be happy here um, and if that's even possible. For me, I'm going to be up front with the listeners. I'm yeah, go real. for it. Be real. I'm going to be real for a second. Uh, I really want to talk to foreigners because I'm in the middle of a full-blown <laughs> existential crisis. I don't know how to be content and I don't know if I should or if I have a right to feel those things. Right, so. We're going to pause, we're gonna pause yeah. and unpack that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, what do you mean by some of those things about whether you deserve to be happy or... Yeah. Here's a little example. Um, last night, I was visiting my wife's business very late. Um, she runs this auto parts company. And her building is next door, The build, her office building is next door to a slum. So I'm sitting in her office, it's about like 10 o'clock at night, um... And I start hearing a bunch of voices chanting from the slum next door. And they're singing zombie from the cranberries. Are you serious? Um, yeah. So I hear 20 or 30 voices just chanting zombie over and over and over again. I peer out the, the windows um, from my wife's office and I look down and I see a group of people. They're huddled in a horseshoe around the back of a flatbed truck okay. and on the back of the flatbed truck somebody's propped up a boom box it's a blue truck um and the boom box is just blaring the song by the cranberries and they're all just chanting and like uh shoving their fists in the air and they're dancing um That's they're awesome. dancing and then uh somebody outside the horseshoe is serving food and they're just having a it's a thursday night you know it was raining and it didn't matter. Oh, it's raining. <laughs> it did not matter. It wow. did not matter. The cranberries had a hold of them. And I'm sitting there thinking, they have found joy in this song that is really sad, you know, and they're in the slums. And I'm next door here looking down at them from my wife's office building. Who the fuck am I <laughs> to have a crisis? Mm. They have identified with the song. They're not going to give up. It was it was this beautiful moment. And then I just sat there saying, well, wow, Donald, you're <laughs> what a dick you are. <laughs> what are you whining about? You know, and then there's guilt for feeling this uh, antsiness, this uh, desire. Why should I want more or why should I? be able to have more. So when you when you're saying uh, whatever expletives you use to yeah. to chastise yourself uh, and damn yourself, what do you feel like you're complaining about that yeah. you should shut up about? So in in the interview with Paul, uh, Paul touches on like these juxtapositions around Bangkok. You'll see a lot of poverty next to exorbitant amounts of wealth. And so here I am part of a wealthier class. And so along with that comes a lot of guilt. You carry that guilt around yeah. a lot. Yeah, I think I do. I feel bad that I am ineffective. I feel sort of ineffective. You know, I feel sort of ineffective to the stuff I see around me. Um, so part of this season, um, talking to other artists that are not just Thai, but visitors and foreigners who have chosen mm. to come and live and work here. I need to know if they're happy. I need to know if I can be happy. 
I need to know how they go about making art that they care about in this place and how they go on day to day without that guilt crushing them. Um, also thinking about my future here. Do I stay or do I go? Um, this summer, I guess we should catch people up. So at the end of last season in um, the spring, I was struck with this Martian aphasia that everybody was talking about. I decided to, while still suffering from this, I went to uh, the Karat Basin. Oh, that's right. You yeah. went up to the you went up to the the crash site. Yeah, this, to uh, visit one of the whale crash sites, which I should have mentioned to Paul because watching yeah, it's the, the forest, same. Yeah, yeah, we were both we were both idiots. Right, that, watching yeah. the forest. He basically ma- he basically made a movie. Yeah, he would have been filming this like right yeah. after the yeah. right right after yeah, the crash. I think so. Yeah, and I don't so know why you were such idiots. Yeah, I didn't really get to get close to the How crash site. How close can you get? I I got about like a. Uh, about a mile. What is it? What do they About have? A like a, the, they have the tiger, uh, the, like the military set up like perimeters. Yeah. Right? There's yeah. There's a fence as good a fence as <laughs> as they could um, produce because it's you know a hilly area and they have people stationed all around it. Um, so Just I didn't like soldiers or cops? yeah soldiers and so I I didn't really get a very close look. I did see some of these. Uh, I think the Thai people are calling them buckruck. These vines. Yeah. Um, these vines that. Yeah. Uh, people are talking about um that are wait you saw them outside you saw them outside yeah, of growing the... it, they seem to be growing out from beneath the barriers out uh, of the crash site so so it's that extensive up there the images i've seen online mm-hmm. i thought were maybe doctored right because they, they look weird i mean they're like yeah. they're most flowering earth plants do mm-hmm. not have like multiple colors exactly. on you know on the thick vines so those yeah. are growing out and they're not yeah. They're not cutting them. Okay, well, maybe they can't keep dragging them off. Were there other people up there, like other there were a rubberneckers? Ton, a ton of people. What mostly mostly foreigners. Uh, there was this one uh, Australian dude. We we became, we exchanged emails. He was pretty nice. Yeah, there were a ton of looky-loos um, with their binoculars trying to get a glimpse. But You, could, you couldn't see any debris. No, I didn't see any debris. Or like, was anything... I couldn't burned or anything. No, I didn't see any scorched earth. I just saw a deep crater of green, a huge well of green. What did that make you? What did that make you think? Did like, did you feel like? It freaked me out. Was it? It It was more freaky than going there and seeing a like giant scorched hole in the earth. No, I go and see this giant green, lush. Okay, that is yeah. And these beautiful flowers. That was even freakier than anything else. So yeah. With these buck rock things, and they're they're growing everywhere. They're growing at all the crash sites, but the, like the official line from the Thai government is that these things don't exist. Yeah, but they're like growing out of the fence, and there's soldiers yes. all around, but they're still denying that it's happening. Yes, there's yeah. like footage of it, you know. And so That's, that yeah. was that was sort of annoying me. Um, just this uh, willing suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So yeah. I'm gonna, how, what, I'm gonna, I'm a, yeah. What have you been up to? Okay. Let me just tell you a little story. My daughter's back in school. She's great, which means I have a little bit more time, a little bit more time to write. And she's doing some after after school activities. And <laughs> on Mondays, she does a gardening yeah. activity. So she's gotten all sort of keyed up about that, about soil and seeds and sun and you know all the all the all the things you need to grow things. We have a lot of we have a lot of plants, but like we I don't know we sort of thought we should get some for her that like she could take care of and so we went up to chattachak market cool uh last weekend to buy some orchids i thought that like 
why not get like a really delicate plant that's mm -hmm. you know for my daughter to learn how to you know really learn on that <laughs> not like a pea shoot or something learn on some orchids yeah. when i first moved to thailand i bought a lot of orchids because oh. they're super super cheap here and mm -hmm. i had this grand vision that i was going to learn how to cultivate them and i'm going to come up i'd become a master <laughs> of orchid cultivation um you can get the like the most beautiful beautiful little orchids mm -hmm. uh, orange and spotted purple ones and they're like three dollars a plant or something right. uh, and we used to go up there when first here and i guess i spoke no time so i was only communicating in english i'd go to this one vendor at chattachek market which is this astonishing market where you can buy sort of anything uh, in the northern part of bangkok when i'd go up there before and i i picked a bunch out and the guy in english was just like you know you can't take these out of the country right because mm. oh. i guess he really? gets like a number yeah, of yeah. tourists who like yeah. come and like want to you know they want to uh they find these beautiful orchids and they want to mm. they want to take them home so like i said i used to have this vision that i was going to develop all these orchids and i know that i got that from my friend po kim who is this mm. amazing korean painter who i knew in new york who had this amazing roof garden and he had bamboo and figs and uh, he'd built a waterfall on his roof underneath these water tower, these water towers. And he also had all these orchids. Yeah. There was this sort of wonderful rhyme between the, the roof garden and the paintings that he'd make. And they were each sort of these sort of weird, surreal echoes of each other. The paintings were these huge, like six by six foot canvases full of all these like birds and trees and these weird, like ghostly figures that he once told me just like, they just once sort of showed up. He was like painting and all of a sudden these really? like ghostly figures. He didn't know who they were. They looked kind of like those like thin, weird ass aliens from the X-Files. Um, okay. yeah. But he collected orchids and he also collected birds. And he sort of regarded it as his duty to perpetuate the species, these mm -hmm. species, like to protect them. And so he'd go down to Chinatown and he'd buy these rare and I'm sure illegal birds in <laughs> in New York Chinatown. Sounds a lot and like he, Chinatown. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And he would fill his apartment at one point. I mean, when I knew him, he only... Um, had maybe 15 birds, but at one point he had like hundreds of birds mm. in his in his apartment. And he had all these orchids and he'd buy some of them there, but also he told me a story about he once went to Machu Picchu. Yeah. Uh, and he was hiking around there, I guess when he was a younger man, maybe in his 70s. I knew him when he was in his late 80s. Oh, okay, um, I see. <laughs> And he found an orchid on Machu Picchu and he dug it up and he hiked down the mountain and he took the train back and then he put it in a paper bag and he carried it back on the airplane with him in his Dude, lap, whoa. which you're not allowed to do. No, I was going to ask. <laughs> but was, again, yeah. he would he regarded this as just like, he's like, that beautiful orchid up there might go extinct. I'm going to bring it home and I'm going to care for it. it. Yeah. Uh, I was still, I was thinking about Poe as we were up there going to Chattachuk Market. Oh, and well, the or did he protect the orchid? Is it it's safe? still well. Does he he he, he he passed, but his orchids are okay. still are still being taken care of. They've, okay. they've converted his he and his wife Sylvia Wald. They've converted their studio okay. into kind of a museum. <laughs> I know, seriously, but That's I don't weird. know if anybody knows which of the orchids it actually is that came <laughs> oh, from Machu Picchu. Anyway, so we went to, yeah. to Chattachuk Market, and it's this mad, uh, wonderful, hot market <laughs> full of where you can buy anything. You can buy furniture, clothes, you can buy original paintings, you can get jewelry, you can get mass produced artisanal coconut souvenirs. It's the world's you... largest outdoor market. Is it really? Know that? Oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so my wife and daughter and son and I, we, we took a picnic and we sat in the park by the market and we like sat in the shade and watched the kids play. Um, and then we went in to to buy some orchids. So my wife and, and son sort of stayed around. They just played in the yard. And my, my daughter and I went, we, we walked through these sort of winding. It's a sort of very mazy place. They like sell maps to the market, but yeah. I never, I always lose <laughs> them and I forget them. So like you can buy like hipster button down flannel shirts and uh, like statues, 
made of various, you know, rainforest woods. Um, you can buy hologram <laughs> posters of waterfalls that flicker when you pass them by. We walked by this one vendor. Um, I don't know why I'm thinking of this. But we walked by this one vendor. He was selling jewelry. And it reminded me how I once was at this party. I met a guy who, like, has an antique shop here. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Somehow we got talking about, like, what... I don't think maybe I mentioned that, like, oh, yeah, I'd love to, like, buy some antiques here, but I mm-hmm. don't have a lot of money. And he's like, he's like, the thing to do the thing you can actually get really cheap now is like Cambodian bronzes. Okay. And I was like, Cambodian bronzes. Okay. He was saying, yeah, you could get them really cheap. Like the market's just opening up and people aren't really paying attention to them. So you can get them, you can get them really cheap. So I asked him what they were. And he said that they're sort of like necklace pendant things or sort of big sort of wristbands. I sort of pictured like what Wonder Woman has, you know, uh, those bracelets. I don't know. I asked him where they came from. And he, he says like, yeah, like they dig them out of graves. Like they Whoa. they dig they they're digging up graves and 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 he's like yeah like some people regard this as you know transgressive some. Um, <laughs> but I guess like yeah. I guess you know there's some official body that that is allowing it to happen or something um, and then he sort of drifted away to like get some <laughs> get some more paneer and I just was left thinking about those bronzes yeah and I found myself realizing that I really wanted. <laughs> to possess them you know like i felt this like weird pull toward purchasing something illicit yeah i don't know i don't know if you've ever felt that like that that impulse but it was like when you go to buy a six-pack for the first time when you're underage yeah you know that there's that sort of that thrill and like you know you're doing something bad but you still want it you know and i just wondered what it'd be like to possess them like to have them on my shelf like Mm -hmm. whether like this object that had been buried like some hundreds of years ago, uh, like that had been on the body of someone like, and I didn't, I didn't buy them. Like I, and I wouldn't yeah. do it, you know, yeah. like I'm sort of I'm too much. I'm either like too principled or I'm too yeah. much of a coward. I'm not right. sure which well, of those, yeah. which, of, be, yeah. which of, uh, <laughs> but I knew you could get them at Chattachak market. That's what he said. You could buy these things okay. at Chattachak market. And so I wondered if they were still for sale or yeah. whether like the market's totally shifted or whether yeah. like actually someone's like, do you know what? That's like really transgressive and shitty. <laughs> you shouldn't dig up people's graves and sell um, the bronzes that they were buried with hundreds of years ago. Uh, I don't know why I sort of went on this tangent about Cambodian bronzes, but <laughs> walking by them, I found, finally found the orchid vendor. Yeah. And uh, it's getting really hot and my daughter's really tired. I always misjudge that. I'm always like, no, it's going to be a really great outing for a child. Um, <laughs> and we finally found her, but she's super tired. And I promised that we're going to get her like some coconut ice cream, mm-hmm. like the coconut ice cream and like the hot dog bun, you know, with the beans on top. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, I found like, I found a couple of, I like, like this like little yellow one and this other like sort of brown orchid. It sounds sort of weird, but it's, it's really nice. I don't, I don't know any of their names and I'm mm. shitty taking care of them and I'm sure they will die out there in my house. <laughs> But, but then I saw in this small little pot, yeah, you know, sort of back behind these other orchids, I saw this like red and purple and orange hmm. flowering vine. And I thought, no fucking way. Are you serious? This guy has in this, sh- in this little, this little chattachak shop. Yeah. He has, and I asked him, I was like, I was like, crack my cup. Yeah. Like, that's Bachrock. It's like the Whoa. alien vine. And he put a finger to his lips. And then he said, <laughs> he said, how do I buy Whoa. So that's like, what, like 15 bucks? Yeah. And I stood looking at this thing. And it's just, I mean, like, amongst all these other, like, flowering things. I have to say. <laughs> uh, and I was like, yeah. and I felt that you same sense of, of desire. 
as I felt about those yeah. Cambodian bronzes, you know, like it is a, a little oh, like man. like almost arousal. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> this sort of sense of like this like dangerous thing that I should not like. This is a Martian vine yes. in this market, and I just was like, could I really buy an alien vine and bring it home? Like, could I really possess that? And I felt myself like sweating a little bit, like kind of like that cold sweat, yeah. you know, you get when you're kind of nervous and like maybe you're gonna do something wrong. And then I said, okay. And I handed him, I handed him 500 bucks, like not really believing that I was doing it. My daughter was ready to go and she was like not interested. But, you know, like she, we had the, you know, I'd already like asked for the orchids. But I had him double bag them. Like I'm no longer yeah. like suffering from generalized anxiety, but I still had this like still like little bit of a sense of like, like this is an alien vine. Like I don't know. Like yeah. he looked all right, but like I don't know how he was handling them. Right. So we carried them <laughs> home. Like I carried this alien vine, like in a plastic bag, home on the SkyTrain. That the and, government says does not exist. And the government says does not exist. Yeah. Um. And I, and I like felt like I was carrying something, like absolutely legal. Which I guess, like, I guess I am. And maybe I actually shouldn't be talking about it. <laughs> right. You're not worried about this. <laughs> I don't know why. I was so excited to tell you the story. Yeah. I didn't think about it until now that like I probably shouldn't even be talking about it. You're this. telling our friends in the and, Maldives. Uh, they'll keep a secret. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so maybe I'll... Okay, here's the, here's the story. Okay. I know I've done something wrong. Yeah. And I am promise that I'm going to go home <laughs> after the podcast, yeah. uh, whether it's the Thai government listening or whether it's ISEC, like I'm going to go home yeah. and I'm going to throw out the alien vine. <laughs> I'm definitely going to throw it out. I'm going to burn it. How about yeah. that? I'm going to burn it. Um but for now, it's growing in a little pot <laughs> on the IKEA like mesh shelving, metal shelving we bought in Brooklyn and shipped here. So cool! It's growing next to this little papaya sapling that we grow from a seed in a nice. pot. Um, and my daughter's been watering it every morning, and like I don't let her get too close to it. Like I have her like hold the right, yeah. hold the hose and like put her thumb over it so it like sprays it from a distance because yeah. um, it's an alien vine. Yeah, we don't. But yeah. it's, uh, oh it's but it's really God. beautiful. And, <laughs> oh my and, God! Uh, you should come over before I. Before yeah, it is, before it is I have to come see this. Yeah, so yeah, that's what I've been up to. Whoa, okay, yeah, that is. So, uh, so I went home to America where there was, I found more disbelief, more willing suspension of disbelief. Um, I needed to get. I was pretty freaked out. Um, my speech was deteriorating. Thailand was. I got to work with a great speech therapist though, and so that helped. Um, where was that? That was in Vermont. Yeah. Uh, yeah so i I went to vermont um i was home in the states uh doing a little mini book tour because i have a book coming out it's Um, right harbors harbors yeah harbors is coming Coming out out in a a couple of weeks here while i was home i worked with the speech therapist i and then visited a lot of cities and got to see a lot of people it was it was mostly good but uh, the whole trip was undercut by all of these uh acts of violence that i kept witnessing over and over and over again first to you know i i kept waking up every morning it seemed every morning i woke up there to a new a new tragedy um no i can't say tragedy tragedy is like an act of god right atrocities yeah atrocity i i wake up to alton sterling um I wake up to Philando Castile. I wake up to uh, Charles Kinsey. Mm-hmm. Um, Dallas police shooting. Just every yeah. every week that I was there, there was another atrocity. And I didn't feel safe there. So the whole, 
it was supposed to be this moment where almost like a victory lap, right? I finished this thing. This no, it's book. fucking huge. Yeah. You've, you like you've, <laughs> yeah, you've finished you've, this you've thing. Written, I mean, like yeah. I, for anybody who's not a writer out yeah. there, like publishing your first book yeah. is like a huge. This is great. It's like right? a huge moment, and like it's supposed to sort of feel like everything kind of yeah. clicks. Yeah, but no, it was the whole. There was this cloud of despair, just fear as I'm driving from city to city, like scared I'm going to get pulled over. And I was reminded every single moment I was in the States of why I left. I left because America never felt, never felt safe to me. It never felt like my place. And returning home to Thailand, this isn't home home either. This doesn't feel like my place. Mm -hmm. So part of this existential crisis is what is home? Where am I supposed to go? Um, I mean, you've talked, you've talked before about how, like, as a black man, you feel mm. safer here yeah. than mm. in the U.S., which is, which is great <laughs> yeah. here. But when you were driving around, when you were driving mm. between cities and you not wanting to get pulled over, yeah. did you feel... Did it feel like things had gotten worse? Like the climate had gotten worse? Like you, did you feel like it was like it was more likely that a police officer might react yeah. to your body? Yeah, more so than when you when you left. Yeah, during the summer, especially after the Dallas shooting, um, I was especially on guard. Um, after cops were killed, then I was definitely worried. I remember getting a constant text from my wife wanting to know where I am because mm. she was in fact she tried to talk me out of driving uh, she she said well you know maybe it's safer to fly maybe it's safer to take a train um here I feel safer and so then again going back to this guilt what do I have to feel sad or melancholy about mm. you know I I'm here in Thailand I have a steady job my life is pretty comfortable, so. And your book's coming out. And I have a book coming out. I yeah, but I. So what am I? Yeah. What am I? What do I want, Colin? And that's what this season is about. <laughs> that's what this. What do I yeah, want? Yeah, I mean, I'm laughing, but, but yeah, that's, what about that's, you? Like that's heavy, yeah. but that's heavy stuff, and I, I mean, yeah. it's I can't imagine. It was a it was a bad summer. Yeah. It was a bad summer in the U.S. and it remains a bad autumn. In the U.S., it's a bad right. time in the U.S. It's a bad time. <laughs> yeah, I guess we should. I guess yeah, we've, get we've, we've now. bantered on about uh, about all this nonsense. Yeah. Um, so it was good to return to the Freeze Green Club, a nine seat theater uh, in the heart of Bangkok. Could you say the heart? Yeah, it's yeah, in the Sukhumvit area. Sukhumvit area is sort of like yeah. one of the tourist areas, one of the mall areas, yeah. and it's down this uh, down this soy that there's a lot of massage parlors and. Yeah. Um, <laughs> things that are not massage parlors <laughs> uh and also fruit vendors and yeah. uh, but it's it's a it's an awesome place it's, it's a private awesome film place. club yeah private film club um and it was just great to catch up with paul and talk to him about his film the forest um paul was definitely on our minds um for a while now to interview and so we we're really glad that he took the time to sit down and chat with us without any further ado here's paul spurrier That's great. So, 
where are we where are we sitting right now where are we do where could you just tell us a little bit about where we are right now as we do this interview well right now we are sitting right in front of the screen of the free screen club which is probably the smallest cinema well it's certainly the smallest cinema in bangkok and probably asia which is a nine seat cinema and uh, it's a members only club and we show weird and old and cult and classic films um, every night here for people to come and watch I mean, we have no idea whether anybody would come at all. All logic dictated that everybody really wants to see, you know, Avengers films and Batman films and that nobody would ever come. But I, I think my idea was, well, the worst that could possibly happen is that I have my own cinema on a bar in my living room. So how could that be bad? <laughs> when you decided to make the Freeze Green Club, did you feel like there was a need for something like this? Or? It was utterly selfish. <laughs> Um, I mean, of course, you know, all business schools will tell you you should, you know, research your market and find out whether other people want something. I didn't do that at all. I, <laughs> and I very much missed the repertory cinemas of when I was growing up in London, the places where you could see bizarre life-changing films from Pasolini to George Romero. Mm. And I just wondered, how do people now see those films in Bangkok, Thailand? I remember my grandmother taking me once to see The Sound of Music. I think it was the first film I'd ever seen at the cinema. And I cried so much that I woke up next morning with my eyes sealed shut. <laughs> and uh, and I just, I, I wanted to know, how do they do that? How do they, what is a film? You know, at that age, you sort of think the actors might be sort of standing behind the screen <laughs> or something. I grew up in a, I was going to say dreadful place. I almost can, because I doubt anybody listening to this program will be living where I grew up. So I probably can say bad things about it. go for it. it. No, yeah. paint, paint us a picture. Why is it so dreadful? <laughs> it was the most easterly point in England. And if you've ever sort of been on the east coast of England in winter, you'll know how fun that is. <laughs> Quite understandably, I was totally asthmatic. And also, I detested any form of sports whatsoever, and still do. And my mother had been a dancer, and so to exercise, she took me off to tap dancing lessons, which I actually quite enjoyed. And so when I was about seven or eight, I became the junior English champion tap dancer. Whoa. Really? I didn't realize that's who we were interviewing today. Yeah. Most incredible. people wouldn't guess that. <laughs> And so I used to love watching musicals. I watched, you know, all the films by Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, mm. which of course used to get me beaten up quite a lot by school friends. Mm. Um, but uh, I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to do that? Maybe I could tap dance and make films like this. And so I wrote off to a, a, a new talent agent in London. And uh, she said, uh, you know, just come and audition. At which point I had to tell my parents that I'd written to this right. talent agent in London. But luckily they took me and I got taken on. And then I suppose for about, well, for about 10 years, I spent a lot of time acting in television and film programs. How old? So how old was that when you sent off your, uh, when you packed your tap dancing shoes and went off to London? I think it was, I was about eight. About when eight. I, wow. yeah. So did you actually tap in some of your... No. Some of those early... They, ne they, never, they, did. No. Oh, never did. Never oh. did. You got it. They're like, this is my talent. And they're like, no, It was really, it's very not. frustrating <laughs> that I'd spent so much time perfecting a talent that apparently nobody wants. Yeah, well... And, you know, I always get a bit annoyed when you read these TV, uh, TV stories and the newspaper reports about, you know, the appalling plight of child actors. Yeah. They always seem to be, you know, they're either on drugs or they're sort of washed up or they're bank robbers or they're trying to sue their parents 
parents for stealing all their money. I don't think I come to any of those categories. <laughs> but, uh, you can't, you can't recall. There's still time. There's still time. <laughs> but I mean, I, I had a great time, and it was uh, it was wonderful. I travelled to countries. I and I just loved the idea of being around a film set. So I mean, I I just loved that period, and I loved always the process of filmmaking. Um, partially just the amount of equipment and what did it all do. It was like a sort of massive Lego set of lights and cranes and cameras. And I'm sure I was very annoying. I always used to ask, what does that do? And why do you use that? And, and so, I mean, that just defined the fact that I, from a very early age, I just thought that's what I want to do. I want to have something to be around this place, be around all this stuff and tell stories. And, uh, and so that really uh, sparked off the whole thing about wanting to make films. Can you paint us a picture of uh, maybe a role where you really felt a part of that storytelling in a way that really lingers with you? Well, of course, when you're a child actor, a lot of the time you're playing sort of the son, the the good school child, and you run in and you say, you know, mummy, uh, can I have my pocket money? And then you run out again. And after a while, you sort of think, well, that's a bit boring. So I remember being in a television thriller where I got to um, stab my woman's lover with a sword and put oh. him in a fridge and, uh, and, Goodness. <laughs> and, and played an utterly evil character. And of course, you know, the, I remember the TV studio, they had, you know, child psychiatrists who'd come and talk to me and you know, to make sure I wasn't, you know, somehow uh, <laughs> sort of affected mentally by this. But of course, as a child, it's just great fun. And, uh, and so that was probably the most fun thing. I, I didn't know that was, a, that was a thing, that studios would hire a psychiatrist or someone to be there to talk to a child if well, there's a role like We all like know that. why. I mean, of course they don't care whether you're traumatized the rest of your life. They just don't want to be sued. Right. Oh, right. <laughs> you know, they want to be able to go to court and say, we provided a top psychologist. Right. <laughs> they know a film is going to be made. They know a, 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 a tell-all expose yes. is going to exist in the future. It's exactly. Just, they want to, you know, In fact, I haven't thought of that. Mom. That could be a good way to raise the budget for my next film. Yeah. I shall sue them immediately. <laughs> Can we change this interview? It'll be about my being traumatized <laughs> by my yeah, let's, sh let's change gears. We just say basically how the forest is based on your internal landscape yeah. and uh, yeah that might explain how warped it is yeah. <laughs> uh, what's the arc from maybe a, a simple a, a short version from those last days of being uh, an, uh, an actor in England to coming to Thailand being a working actor is probably the most wonderful job in the world. It's like being a child in a playground. The problem is that I think there's some statistic in England anyway that 80% of actors at any time are unemployed. Um, and that's not fun. And so I really wanted to, you know, be more in control and certainly to move behind the camera. And so you know, I went, I did the normal things. I went to film school. Um, I started working. I worked as an editor. I worked as a cameraman. I eventually set up my own company. We, we made one feature film, which was fun. But much of our time, it has to be said, like most people working in the industry, was making very boring commercials and marketing films. I mean, I literally made a film, you know, about a screw factory. <laughs> um, you know, I made films about how to make the perfect pizza. Pizza Hut pizza. You know, I, I even 
I don't know whether I should talk about this, but it it actually might my experience might be useful given the current mm. you know situation with um you, you, anyway no it's just I did a, a time making um uh, making sales videos for weapons of mass destruction for mm. the Ministry of Defense oh really um which was which was great fun wait what, walk us through that a little bit what yeah. what was that all about Pizza Hut Pizza too <laughs> <laughs> well it all came actually as a result of a bet I was sitting with a couple of my business partners and talking about you know how appalling the work was we were doing that we were making films for pizzas which would obviously kill people <laughs> and uh, and we said you know, do we have any scruples whatsoever is there anything we wouldn't do and uh, and I said well as long as it's legal uh, yes I think I would make any film at all and so a friend said, well, I bet you wouldn't. Let's say somebody came to you and said, you know, will you make a, a training video on how to use a machine gun? Would you do that? And I said, um, absolutely. Mm. And uh, the next week, somebody rang me up and said, will you make a training <laughs> film for, for a machine gun? So unfortunately, I had to do it. Otherwise, yeah. I would lose the bet. <laughs> so anyway, you know, we were doing this horrible work. Mm. Um, I did draw the line at making cigarette commercials, but uh, that was about it. But, you know, you have to do dreadful, horrible boring films and then at some point I had just been um, dumped by my girlfriend and we had we'd booked to go away on a romantic vacation this was in just before the Millennium New Year 2000 and I realized I had nothing to do and a friend rang me up and said please help me I have to go and make a documentary about elephants in Thailand nobody wants to come and I'm sure you won't want to come and I said yes I'll go it's always rather disturbing to think about the strange chain of events that sometimes bring you to where you are and how it might have been totally different. And I had to go and see the girl later and, you know, thank her for dumping me because it changed my entire life. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was my first time in Thailand, up in Lampang and Chiang Mai. And can you describe how you initial, your initial impressions of Thailand? Well, Lampang is uh, up towards the north, uh, probably most uh, close to, to Chiang Mai you can get to. And there's a uh, the Elephant Conservation Center there, um, which is where um, elephants are looked after. Unfortunately, one of the things that happened in Thailand, of course, it was great that they stopped deforestation or tried to stop or outlaw deforestation. But one of the side effects was that it made a lot of elephants unemployed. I was with this BBC crew, and we arrived up in Lampang. And we were filming from, you know, early in the morning till, till quite late. And we'd get back to the hotel, and the BBC producer and the director would say, you know, well, it's been a long day, I think we should all go to bed. And I was in Thailand, I was in Lampang, <laughs> I didn't want to just go to bed. So I remember I would, you know, sneak out of my room, go down to the desk and say, you know, I want to go into town. And they would put me in the back of their pickup and take me to town. And that was how I discovered, you know, karaoke bars and Thai nightclubs and Luktung <laughs> music and uh, strange meat on sticks. And these were my little sort of solitary adventures. And, uh, and I just had a great time. 
And I remember on the very last night of our shoot, the producer said, you know, oh, well, look, we've been very boring. We've never actually been out. So, you know, let's see if there's anything in town. So he went down and said to the lobby guy, can we get into town? The guy looked a bit strange because he'd been taking me there every night already. <laughs> so so we go into town. Of course, wherever we go, everybody says, hey, Paul, how are you doing? Will you buy me a drink? <laughs> and, and that really just started a whole fascination you know for many things i mean the filming was great of course you know we had these incredible landscapes the crew was wonderful um but also just you know the fun of thailand mm -hmm. it it really was a great escape from what at the time was very boring england back when i first came to thailand you would see elephants walking on the streets of bangkok and you know asking for money for the food for the elephants it's rather, I shouldn't say it, but in a way I miss them. <laughs> I know it was awful for elephants to be on the streets of Bangkok, and quite rightly they stopped them coming through the city limits. But there was always something visually rather surreal and wonderful about an elephant walking past the, you know, the modern Emporium shopping yeah. centre. <laughs> I moved to Bangkok a couple of months before that, that ban took effect, and I remember that same, I mean, I know it was only here for a few months, but I do remember that same that surreality you're talking about and that sense of of this is such a you know hybrid place but it seemed all you know particularly part of visually of of a lot of the things that i found appealing about thailand which was these contradictions visually yeah. about the juxtaposition of you know a state-of-the-art modern department store with, you know, a guy outside selling somtam on a tuk-tuk. And, and uh, it's, it's always been a fascinating mix of, as the Thais call it, the high-so life, the high-society life and, uh, and poverty. I feel like that is one of the reasons that drew me to move to Bangkok, that juxtaposition. I'm um, seeing that up against each other. It, it's always interesting. Uh, well, yeah, and of course, I think you go through a, a much greater range of emotions mm -hmm. here. You know, a lot of interactions you have uh, are very fun and satisfying. I mean, it's wonderful to be able to go into a 7-Eleven and get a smile and a chat from somebody you've never met before. In England, if you did that, they'd probably stab you. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, you'll cross a pedestrian footbridge mm -hmm. and you'll see, you know, a small child begging for money. And that's heartbreaking. And so in one day, you go through a, seems like a wider range of emotions. I think one of the things that I miss most is my first impressions of when I came to Thailand. I remember just finding everything fascinating. Um, you know, one of the cliches that people take pictures of, and I understand why, is the telephone and electricity and internet wires up above the mm -hmm. streets that just form this incredible jungle of spaghetti. You know, and pavements where, you, you know, there's no, often seems little attempt to make them even, <laughs> so you can break your neck if you don't actually, you know, look down at your feet all the time. Yeah. And at first, everything is strange and weird and fascinating. And uh, and after a while, uh, you, you, don't, you don't see that anymore. It becomes invisible. It's like we're talking only about elephants on the streets. A friend of mine came to visit me, and, uh, and we were walking down the street, 
I can't say what he said, but he said, look at that. And I said, what? He said, look at that. Said, what, what are you looking at? There's an elephant. <laughs> and I go, oh, yes. No, no, they're, yes, they're elephants. <laughs> and and it's, it's tough to try and keep that, I don't know, to keep it fresh, to keep in mm. some way your sort of naivety about the place. Yeah like to spend a good deal of our time with you today talking about the forest, mm. but I think uh, maybe just to, to wind up to that, maybe you could talk a little bit about the other Thai language film, P, uh, that you made a couple of years ago. Well, one of the things that sort of brought me here, if you like, full-time, was the idea that I wanted to make a Thai language feature film. And, and obviously that required that I learn to speak Thai. It required that I travel around and find a story and try and research it. And that resulted in this film uh, called P. P is the Thai word for ghost. Um, and I suppose I was sort of excited by the idea that I would be the first ever Westerner to direct a Thai language film. Um, and we did it. We, we made the film and it overseas. We were very happy with the fact that a lot of people saw it. It did a lot of festivals and it got released and it got released in cinemas in quite a lot of foreign countries. My big disappointment was that it never played in cinemas in Thailand. Now, you know, you ask yourself why, um, I think there were difficulties in terms of, you know, the monopoly of distribution companies here. I think it didn't help that uh, that I made a film partially set in, you know, one of Bangkok's CD bars at a time when <laughs> the, the Prime Minister was trying to say they didn't exist. <laughs> um, but I also have to question whether in the end what I made was a Thai film. Uh, it's maybe significant that uh, that it was probably one of the most successful Thai films in the market outside Thailand that year. And so in a strange way, although it was in Thai language with Thai actors and a Thai crew and a Thai story, maybe I actually still didn't make a Thai film. Mm. And so uh, in the time since, um, I've obviously... I don't know whether I've tried to, but I've certainly enjoyed trying to, if you like, get deeper and more ensconced in the in, in the culture. Mm. And so I've done, you know, strange things. I, I spent about a year working on um, Thai television dramas. Um, what sort of shows? Well, your audiences overseas probably have no idea how how, how dreadful Thai television dramas are. Um, but you know that was that was fun, and then it certainly taught me how to well, it improved my Thai language and my understanding of the way it all worked. And uh, I've also consulted to the Thailand Film Office and to the government on sort of film policy and things like that. I mean, there are two different film industries in Thailand. You have the local film industry making Thai films essentially for Thai audiences. But of course, there have been some quite big Hollywood films, oh, and films from all over the world that have come to shoot in Thailand. You know, people will obviously think of you know, Hangover 2. Mm. Um, and most recently, the film was just I was Mechanic Resurrection, which I think 95% of it was shot in Thailand. Mm -hmm. 
So there are a lot of um, films that come to shoot in Thailand every year, and there are a lot of very good reasons. Um, I like helping the Thailand Film Office to promote Thailand as a place to make films because I actually believe in it. Um, you know, one of the reasons I, I suppose that I stay here and I want to make films here is because um, I have a great respect for the Thai crews. Um, skilled, efficient, hardworking, fun to work with. Um, you know, you have every sort of film equipment here that you would want. Um, I'm doing a good sales job. You're doing a great job. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. you know, I actually do believe it. That's why I'm here. Yeah. And I suppose that's what I can bring to it is, you know, I, uh, I do believe it. And I liked it so much I stayed. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, of course, at some point you start thinking, you know, I should make another film. And it's one of my, you know, worst fears of my parents is the conversation where, where I say, I think I'll make another film because they know I'm going to bankrupt myself again because <laughs> this inevitable thing happens if you make a film is you lose all your money. <laughs> but uh, you can't help it. <laughs> Could you maybe give us the the sales pitch yeah. for just or the, the elevator pitch for the plot of the film. I think that's always the hardest thing to do. <laughs> um, I always like to quote once a critic said, um, when, when this director started to make a film, he said, only he and God knew what it was about. Now the film is finished, only God knows. <laughs> <laughs> and I always feel a little bit like that when I've finished anything, because you've got so close, you have no idea what it's about anymore. Yeah. I suppose this is a, a story of a teacher at a very rural school who has just left the monkhood and one of his pupils a nine-year-old girl and both are facing a sort of conflict between reality and fantasy um, the teacher has left the slightly fantastical world of the monkhood to find the rather harsh realities of the real world um, whereas the girl who is bullied and uh, picked on by her school friends and has a rather unhappy life finds refuge in this rather mystical and fantastic world of a forest where she makes a, a new friend who may or may not be real. And so, and, and I think again that was, if you like, inspired by some of the feelings I felt about Thailand where there is this constant juxtaposition between those things we see and those things that we don't see. Um, the belief in the, not just religious, but the animism, the belief in the spirit world um, is very real here. And you often see these two both coexisting and sometimes conflicting. Mm. It was, I think it was a great film. Um, and one of the things I most admired about it, there was an apparent respect for Thailand that was conveyed through the film. Being a white man <laughs> in Thailand, um, and as you said, did you, with P, was it a Thai film? Um, I know there's a lot of questions of who has the right to tell certain stories, right? Uh, do you feel you had a right to tell the story of the forest? That's an interesting question. Um, I don't know <laughs> whether I have the right to... Um, you know, and then, of course, you get into questions of, you know, am I trying to, in some ways, copy Thai films? Am I trying to somehow insert myself into a Thai culture? And 
is that real or am I somehow, am I an ersatz Thai filmmaker? Um, but of course, the truth is that those things you can't answer. I can't answer those. Um, I just had an idea for a film that excited me and wanted to make it. In the same sense, I'm fascinated to see how Thai audiences will react. Um, I honestly don't don't know um, because, you know, this is unusual even for a Thai film. I mean, for one reason, about uh, at least a third of the film, maybe even half, is not in Thai language. Um, it's in the language of the northeast region, the Isan region of Thailand, um, which has its own dialect. So interestingly, in, uh, in when we show it in Bangkok, those sections will have to be subtitled. Um, but also, you know, there is a long tradition in Thailand of the ghost film. Um, and they're often popular, and they're often popular also around the region. Um, Thai ghost films will play in Cambodia, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia. Um, and I wanted to come from that tradition of the ghost film. Um, but also, what is strange about this film is that, you know, I think to a certain extent it takes the side of the ghost. <laughs> um, it's certainly, I mean, I've always thought ghosts had a bit of a rough deal, is that, you know, all they get to do is jump out of dark closets and, <laughs> and kill people. And you, I, I'm, I just, uh, I don't know, I have one of those strange minds of things, well, you know, they must be a bit lonely just sitting in a closet waiting for somebody to come that you can jump out on. <laughs> and so that was sort of the story I wanted to tell was the other side of it, what it would actually like to be um, a spirit uh, in the Thai tradition of what the beliefs are. Could you give us a sense of your understanding of ghosts in <laughs> Thailand? I've had lots of conversations with uh, Thai friends and with Farang friends, who foreign friends who've been here for a while, and to try to get a little bit of this this distinction between a ghost and a spirit, the spirit of the land versus the uh, the ghost of a deceased person. And they've been some of the most fascinating conversations I've had with, with uh, Thai people here, because on, when you start the conversation, it seems very clear that they are distinct, that the, the offering that you're making at the spirit house is for the spirit of the land, and that is kind of a, a certain kind of being. But then as you get deeper into the conversation, and you start talking about leaving out food on the curb for a ghost, it then starts to get into this sort of gray area where at the end of the conversation, it's like, well, it's all... They're all kind of part of the same. <laughs> so I'm just curious how you understand that and how, how did that inform the film? Well, you know, I have to say, listening to you, I can just imagine what the Thai people you're talking to say. They would actually say, oh, phalang kit mark, which means, oh, <laughs> the, the, the strange Westerners <laughs> thinking too much. Um, because, of course, it is one of the things that we tend to do. I don't know whether it's necessarily a Western thing, but it's certainly a sort of expat thing to do in Bangkok, is to spend lots of time trying to analyze exactly. how this all works. Exactly. And I suppose it would be like your question to me, trying to yeah. analyze my film. Sometimes you're so close to it. Mm -hmm. It is a feeling. It is part of your life. It is so integral. You can't really dissect, you know, what it all means. I mean, this is, it's certainly um, true that, that there is no problem for Thai people being scientists or doctors or, you know, intellectuals who have an absolute faith in logic. Um, also, you know, making their offering to the spirit house. Mm. 
Um, they don't see that as being an issue. And I get confused all the time. And, and I ask these questions of my wife, who just looks at me and sort of is confused as to why I'd want to ask such things. I mean, one of the questions that I have never really managed to get an answer about is the, the belief of Thai people in a heaven and a hell. Ah. Um, there are these wonderful places you can go to. I don't know if they've ever been to the hell parks. Yeah. which are part of, uh, generally attached to a Buddhist temple. Yeah. And they have these very lurid, gory s statues of people being picked apart and disemboweled. And... and each of the, from my understanding of it, is each of the different uh, tortures uh, that, is, that is visited upon these, these statuary figures is based on a different kind of sin. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, you know, the, the greedy person will be tortured in one way. Has their guts eaten out by a yeah. vulture? Or absolutely, absolutely. And uh, and yet, of course, we think of Buddhism as having a belief in reincarnation. Mm. Um, but of course, Thai Buddhism is very much influenced by other things, you know, Brahmin, Hinduism, and animism. And so again, we sit around trying to define this thing, and, and then <laughs> and make, we just make get... podcasts about yes, it. Yes, exactly. yes, yes. <laughs> that that area you were filming, that forest. One of the things I found myself thinking about as I was watching the film was just was how large an area hmm. were you actually filming in? Because one of the, the the tricks of the film, I think, is that it actually gives a a really wonderful sense of of expansiveness hmm. and of and diversity of of landscape without it actually seeming like you're in totally different places. I mean, there's some sort of lakefront, uh, there's some lakefront scenes that have sort of rocks and sort of lawn-like area, mm. and then there's cliffs, and there's then there's caves. these certain yeah. Yeah. sort of um, uh, areas of forest where there's sort of no underbrush, and then there's sort of very, you know, sort of dense sort of jungly. So I'm just, you know, not, not to ruin the mystery, but how, how many different locations was that, or were you just kind of... Is that just the way that landscape looks? Well, almost all of it was shot in this Isan northeast province. Um, I say almost because there was one cave that we found that was so great oh, right, that I wanted yeah. to film there, and it wasn't in Isan. That was our sort of ground rule, that if it was in Isan, it was fair game. Okay. That, that could be part <laughs> of the forest. Um, but certainly... You know, no, no two scenes in the forest were probably shot in the same area. Okay. Uh, we traveled in all over about 6,000 kilometers around the area. And so, you know, there's, a, there's as you mentioned, the lake with the, um, the lotus flowers and the cliff. And, the, you know, they are all um, in separate places. And I, I wanted to, as, I'm kind of glad you picked up on it because I wanted to get the idea that once they go into this forest that it becomes it, it isn't really reality anymore that it is impossibly big mm -hmm. if you try to make logical sense of the fact that you know this incredible <laughs> area exists and nobody ever goes into it it doesn't make any sense it has to be part of the world of fantasy right I do have to ask um, while you were filming did you and your wife come across any of the buckruck, any of the the vines uh, that are growing all over the country right now. Did you see any? Well, you know, there were a couple of times when the locals all grouped around and they were looking at something that 
they said was like you know yeah, yeah, some yeah. sort of weird plant that they hadn't uh, that they hadn't noticed. Right. Yeah. Because also, your for your foreign eye, you're gonna. I mean, maybe you're very familiar with Thai, thai botany. I don't know, but <laughs> a flower is a flower is a flower is a is a Martian alien exactly. flower. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I called it the forest, but you could easily call it the, the jungle. Um, I find it a fascinating environment. You know, I I love the city. I love having um, uh, you know an underground train and and um, department stores and cinemas. I I generally hate nature, and uh, and do not you know. And the idea of a walk in the country is just appalling. And so for me, the whole concept of the forest is is fascinating because, of course, there is beauty there. But at every millisecond, there are animals eating other animals and killing and torturing. This whole, the, the forest, people say, oh, isn't it beautiful and lovely? No, it's absolute utter mayhem and carnage <laughs> at every minute of the day. And, you know, the shrieks that you hear of the, of the animals are probably them being, you know, disemboweled. And so, <laughs> and so again, I... I really felt I wanted to get some of my strange feelings about the forest and this the closeness of the beauty and the horror. Yeah. Mm. I mean, we always love to go for a nice... Well, I wouldn't, but some people would like to go for a nice walk in the forest by day, but do you want to do that same walk at two right. in the morning? Right. I'm glad that you said that because that's actually been one of my experiences here in Thailand is that I, I, I came here thinking that I was a nature lover and that I could that I just loved being in green places and yeah. and I just find that I've just turned into an utter coward <laughs> when it comes to actually like and I just you know it's it, and it can be anything it's like what is that leaf and like what is that you know what are those insects and this is well before any of them you know the Martian nonsense you know yeah. just this sort of sense of like of just this I don't know what that is I don't know what could be getting me at any moment. And actually, it's sort of really kind of shaken my sort of sense of like what the earth actually is and what well, like, nature actually is. Well, to go back to is. what you were saying about the buck, right? Because did I see anything strange? Yes, in the jungle, you see strange <laughs> 12 legged creatures that are bright purple and green all over the place. Yeah. I mean, maybe they're the aliens yeah, and we never even com- noticed them. It com- yeah, it really complicates your sense of how are you going to. Uh... <laughs> That's wild. Um, I mean, that would be the most disappointing thing about all of this, mm-hmm. is if, you know, if these aliens really are just a bunch of rather boring vines. Right. You know, one always <laughs> hopes that they, will, that they will come down and you'll be able to discuss, you know, interplanetary relations yeah. and philosophy with them. Right. You know, and I, I was rather excited by this, because, you know, I make films, and I'm sure the first thing they will want is propaganda films. Yeah, yeah, and you've made those machine gun and pizza. Yeah, exactly. I, if yeah. I can make films for, for telling you that pizzas are healthy, I'm sure I could help to promote, you know, alien friendliness. Right. Yeah. And then, and of course, you know, also, if I have a use, I may be the last one to get eaten. Yeah. Oh right! I, yeah, I think <laughs> long well, game. Well, this is going to uh, we're going to be sending this out on all frequencies. Yeah, right. So I'm uh, available to make <laughs> alien propaganda films. How much was the the film for you a way of, I suppose, sort of exploring your own understanding of Thai culture? The way we made this film was really quite unusual, in that we shot for 27 days, and for about 20 of them the entire crew was me and my wife. Um, it was just two people. And so, you know, I directed and did the camera, and then my wife did everything else. She <laughs> recorded the sound and looked after the budget and the costumes and made food for the actors. 
and and it was and it was great. It was a sort of tremendously liberating experience, having made previous films with a crew of thirty or forty people, mm. to be able to you know just stop and say, "I love that. Let's film there." Mm. And you know, we climbed uh, a mountain, the Pukadung Mountain in Lui, which is beautiful. But there's no way we could have done that with a massive crew and and uh, so the whole process of making it was an exploration of of everything of the subject that we were making of the whole technique of making it um and it changed and it evolved uh, i mean when we we first two of the main characters are uh, kids and we had always just assumed that we would find them in bangkok because in Bangkok you have modeling agencies, drama schools, that sort of thing. But as we were scouting up country, and we went to these schools and these villages, we suddenly realized that putting two, you know, coiffured uh, Bangkok <laughs> children into this environment would just look silly. It wouldn't work. And so we said, no, no, we're going to have to find these children locally, and that's sort of took about um, two weeks of traveling around and visiting schools and we gave a little seminar presentation on how films were made and got the kids to audition. I mean, the hard part was finding two children who were interested in acting, wanted to act, you know, um, had the courage to try it. And so, you know, we spent a lot of time with them. I think it was about 20 days. And always with them were their two fathers who came along. Mm -hmm. And so one of them we uh, we taught to use the clapperboard, and the other we taught to hold the boom mic. So they became <laughs> uh, part <laughs> of our crew. Right? crew. But uh, And in the end, we were trying to find somebody to play this girl, Jazz, her, her father. And we wanted to find somebody who was from the area, who could speak the dialect and who you know, had a, a face that seemed to sort of indicate a troubled history. Um, and so eventually we used her father, oh, her really? real father. Oh. So, <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. And the other thing that happened, the script was in Thai, and we suddenly realized that these children would not speak Thai if they are in that area. And so we started filming essentially without a script for any of hmm. those scenes. And so that was another sort of voyage of exploration. The funny thing is, it was tremendously helpful. And I'm so glad we did it that way, because if we had given these two children scripts and they learnt them, yeah. it would have given, been a very different performance. Yeah. So the way we did it, we'd start every scene, and I would... I mean, I'd have the script, but I'd say, you know, if he says this, what would you say? And that was how we would literally write that scene dialogue on the spot. And I like to think that's why some of the those scenes have a feeling of being natural. Yeah. What What do you think that a a Thai person and let's actually skip over local foreigners. Let's. Uh, what do you think that a, that a Thai person watching this film when it opens here in Bangkok? What is the What is a Thai person going to see in that film and understand that when it opens in London or New York, a a Westerner is just not going to pick up on. Well, I I do actually believe that there are obviously certain things that, if you like, bind all audiences around the world. That you know, stories are often universal. Um, but you're right that certain things will resonate more with um, with people of a certain culture. Um, 
I think, you know, the the hierarchies in the film in terms of um how the headmaster relates to the teachers about the the teachers feelings of having left the monkhood you know we can understand that as a concept but i think thai audiences will will feel it more mm. and will have experienced that and i think you know there are certain things that might be more controversial um here and might be more shocking um there's a relationship between two of the two of the teachers mm. um one of the interesting things i i have to admit i didn't write the script in thai i wrote it in england mm. and i um work with the same translator i've worked with for seven years and i asked her what she thought of the script and she said you know i thought this teacher was a very bad and irresponsible teacher the the, the man or the woman the man the man yeah, yeah. Um, that he had that he had failed in his obligations, and that was interesting because again it showed a Thai perspective on your responsibilities. Actually, I wanted to uh, read back to you one of my favorite lines. Um, it's from the headmaster uh, in the start of the film. He says, uh, "When they see they can't do anything, they blame me, blame the children, blame the ministry, then they leave." Um, and what I really liked about this monologue is it, it it felt like you were touching on some of the frustrations um, people in the rural areas of Thailand might have um, just with some of the socioeconomic politics that take place in Thailand. So I was curious if this was intentional. Um, did you mean to like touch on topics like this? Well, film. now you've really worried me because the <laughs> scene that you're the, the scene that you're quoting from we've cut for the Thai release. Oh, okay. oh, <laughs> and I see. and that was very interesting because uh, <laughs> 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 now maybe I should put it back. I'm gl I'm glad um, we're talking about it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean right near the beginning of the film we have this quite long monologue yeah. which is really trying to put in perspective where we are what this mm -hmm. school is the hardships socio-economic political mm -hmm. and everything and really what this new young teacher has got himself into mm. i i realized however that actually that is already known to all thai people mm. yeah and it seems a bit sort of preachy to mm. people who who know that stuff anyway. Mm. So we've kept that particular scene in on the, if you like, the the version that goes to film festivals and internationally. But we have actually cut that for okay. for Thailand. Um, but nevertheless, I I think one of the things that I miss in contemporary Thai cinema is films like the sort of films that were being made twenty, thirty years ago which were dramas um, exploring issues, exploring contemporary life and society in Thailand. There's nowadays a perception that that is boring, that unless you have, you know, um, comedic characters falling on banana skins and uh, fat ladyboys and, uh, you know, ghosts and, uh, and Thai fighting, that this will be boring for Thai audiences. And I think that's a pity because there really has been in the past a tradition of um, directors like Tan Mui, who was making dramas about 
quite controversial issues like you know drugs and prostitution and um you know feminism and trafficking and all these big issues and they were and they were interesting films and you know in a way i sort of feel i didn't want to explore and try to understand thailand in in order to just make slapstick comedies you mm-hmm. kind of feel you want to you want to say something that reflects what you see and what you perceive and uh, and the issues that are you know both positive and negative as there are in any society yeah. mm. having lived here for 6 years and still knowing that i know nothing about thailand <laughs> i still found myself feeling rather rather sad at a lot of at, at certain moments in the film something about that that relationship between the teachers about the relationship that 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 um the, the children's the absence of the the parents or the um or even the 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 poaching in the forest right there's just something about that just even my limited understanding of this place it just it, it carried a certain weight and a certain there's actually like kind of a queer it's it queer despair kind of in the background of the film well i mean it's one of the things that uh, you know i love the isan province this vast northeast area of of thailand and you know it has a large population it's it's vitally important to thailand because it produces a, a large percentage of the rice that everybody eats and yet you know i don't think i'm getting too political in saying this clearly um you know it's an underprivileged area it's an area where very often there's there's quite depressing poverty um and and so when you go to these villages and the first site is is incredibly picturesque you know it's these rather nice little wooden houses and the big water collecting jars outside collecting the rain and these you know red paths that lead through all this wonderful green vegetation and everybody smiles and is happy and superficially it's it's perfect it feels like you've you're in paradise but of course like anywhere once you go beneath the surface and you find that the you know possibly the village headman was voted into power because he gave all the villagers 500 baht yeah. each and these you know these petty corruptions um not that this is you know me saying that thailand and isan is the only place this happens we all have problems yeah, yeah, yeah. but of course when you're here you look at the, the the society you're in and so um yes it it feels to me like it's the rather sad reality underneath the the view of paradise mm-hmm. oh, um and so the force will be shown in thailand um uh so i'm curious did you have to go through or what hoops did you have to go through to get it shown all films in thailand have to be to go through a censorship um, a certification and there have been quite a lot of occasions when thai films have been cut or or even sometimes banned there's a famous uh, thai director called um apichatpong wirasetakun yeah. who won the can palm door mm-hmm. you know some of his films have been censored in the past and his latest film he says that he's he doesn't want to cut or censor it so he's not even going to show it in thailand yeah i gather yeah. Um, and so it was with some trepidation that I approached the censorship process, because I really thought there were certain things in the film that that would not pass 
um, the the senses, um, the certain scenes of you know the the wild behaviour of these kids in the the jungle and violence, and particularly violence in the context of children, mm -hmm. that I really thought we might have to cut. And I was debating, you know, how much I'd really want to cut before it would lose some of its uh, appeal. Yeah, sure. So, you know, we, we had to take it to the censors, and I was kind of readying myself for an argument. And they, they came out and they said, you know, fine, passed, without a single <laughs> cut. Really? And their comment, which was rather interesting, was, you know, we understood that, of course, you know, the culture is different in Isan, and they do behave like that, wow. and that if it was Bangkok people, we might not allow it. Oh. <laughs> oh. So again, oh, it was okay. a subtle um, display of the fact that Isan is almost seen as a, a different country that works under different standards. Could you could you maybe just speak simply about maybe some of the just to contextualize that, sort of the, the, the Bangkokian attitude toward Isan. Like, yeah. what is the, uh, the stereotype of, of people from Isan? Mm -hmm. Well, a friend of mine, um, Jerry Hopkins, a well-known writer, he put it very well. He said, I love living in Bangkok because it's so close to Thailand. And what he meant by that was that <laughs> Bangkok isn't really part of Thailand. It's just nearby. Um, <laughs> It is, it is thoroughly different, mm -hmm. uh, the whole attitude of Bangkok people. Uh, Bangkok is, is very separate in its attitudes, and I think there is still um, a certain attitude that Isan people are less intelligent, less sophisticated, you know, sometimes even lazy. And uh, and I hate that. Of course, everyone hates yeah. that. I love Isan. I love the Isan people. And I've always found the exact opposite to be true. Mm. Um, very often, when I work with film crews, they are people from Isan. And I and I what I love is their ability to work, to be incredibly committed, to work very hard, but to be to make it absolutely fun. Hmm. Um, it is the most wonderful thing about working in Thailand, because let's face it, when you're making a film and you've been working 18 hours and, you know, you're tired and you want to get to bed and then it starts raining just before your last scene, <laughs> um, it's hell. And if you acknowledge it's hell, you just wouldn't do it anymore. And um, working in Thailand... Uh, People make it fun, and they will laugh, and um, and it, it's just a great environment to work mm. in. Your your curiosity as to how a Thai audience will react to this is absolutely my curiosity. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether I have any more answers than than you have questions about this because I have the same <laughs> questions. Yeah. You know, I sometimes think, well, wouldn't it be nice if they came out of the cinema and I jumped out and said, by the way, I'm a phalang, I'm a westerner, I made this film. And they go, what, really? Oh, I would never would have guessed. You fooled me. Uh, on the... Yeah, this little little white dude shows up oh, at yes. the end of the film, sort of pops out, like over the like little you know outcropping oh, of the mouth, like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> on, the, on the other hand... You know, then that would be me just trying to sort of pretend to be a Thai filmmaker. And yeah. I, don't, I don't think I'd do that very well. So, you know, I think you just, 
you try to explore a subject, you try to get it basically right. And of course I was worried about, you know, funny little things like, you know, on the teacher's uniform, how many of those sort of braids does she have? And mm. let's get that right. Because right. that's the sort of thing that gives you away, is the detail. Um, and then, of course, you know, ah, Westerner, you couldn't even get the uniforms right. right yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you try and get that stuff right and do your work. But beyond that, you just can't think about um, anything other than just trying to tell your story. Mm. Um, and I suppose, in a way, I suppose all filmmakers would like to think that they are in some way sort of expanding or entering new territory. Mm. Um, so if people came out and they just said, yeah, just another ordinary Thai film, well, that's actually not something right, you really want true. either. Yeah, right. um, it's fascinating. You know, maybe they will all sort of throw tomatoes at me and I'll be <laughs> kicked out of the country and this will be my farewell podcast. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, but you can still be hired by the aliens. You know, so you'll That's that, my only hope. You'll have, that, you'll have that third act in filmmaking. <laughs> yeah. Sort of looking, sort of to turn that uh, knowledge and, and understanding outward from your own film to the the landscape of Thai filmmaking. Could you just give us some some sense of the, the corners of contemporary Thai filmmaking that excite you? Well, I have to start by saying that I think the Thai film industry is in severe crisis at the moment. Um, in 2014, 30% of the total box office was from people going to see Thai films. And in 2015, that had dropped to 18%, so it oh, had almost wow. halved. You know, the American uh, film industry has now realized that uh, the world market is increasingly important to them, that they can make more money outside America than in America. So they are putting a lot of effort into marketing their films around the world, including Thailand. To a certain extent, it's very tough for Thai filmmakers to exist in the commercial world. Here you have a $200 million you know, film with aliens and dinosaurs, um, or a, you know, $300,000 film made by a Thai filmmaker. For your average teenager who's only going to the cinema anyway so he can hug his girlfriend on the back row, you know, they'd rather see the big film. Mm -hmm. And so that's a real form of crisis here at the moment is to, you know, how is it possible to get Thai audiences back to see Thai films? Mm. And of course... The other danger is how do you then redefine Thai cinema? There is, seems to be little point in making, you know, a Thai, say, sci-fi film, because, you know, people will just rather see Star Wars. Mm. Um, and if it's, you know, action, you know, can you make an action film which has as much gunplay and stunts as a Hollywood film? Mm. So then you start restricting what your subject matter is. And one of the things it becomes is very local. It becomes local comedies with local jokes about local situations, which, you know, great. If that's what, you know, the film industry needs to do, great. But it seems to be very limiting in its, in its outlook. Then, of course, on the other hand, you have the, the filmmakers who are well-known outside Thailand, um, like Apichat Pong Wirasetakun, uh, Pen Ek, these directors who do very well at festivals, but whose films are virtually unknown inside Thailand. 
um, they are not seen as commercial films. You know, it's a hard thing to say. You know, where is Thai film going? Uh, where is the place for Thai filmmakers? Uh, and you know, filmmakers all over the world are having a very difficult time with the decline of the DVD market. Yeah. Um, before, you always could send your film out somewhere. Now that's gone, and uh, and so it's it's worrisome. I suppose you could also see it as a time of you know potential that it needs to some way be reborn, redefine itself. Um, you know, maybe that could be exciting. Mm. Uh, well, one of my most disappointing experiences was taking my first feature film to the the pirate DVD shop in Bangkok, and saying, you know, here's a film. You know, you could you could copy it if you wanted. You could make copies of this. And he turns to me and said, you know, who's in it? Well, nobody terribly famous. CG in it. What's it about? Is there anything good in it? And I, well, it's a sort of drama about the underground scene of you know London rave music. And he said, uh, "No, thank you." So, so my film was turned down by the pirates. Oh wow, that's that's a burn. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask, just to to wrap up actually about how you envision the Freeze Green Club continuing to exist here in in Bangkok. Are there do you have any any plans for? sort of new kinds of films or new things to do here or are you just very happy with the way that it the way that it's existing for you and you know as your private film club downstairs this place the freeze the free screen club where we are i mean there are certain things i would like to target more um i would like to have more thai members um thai people coming in um it's a great pity that there aren't more films available with Thai subtitles, mm -hmm. and that that's tricky. But to a certain extent, I suppose I'm sort of a Luddite. I always hate it when you've been going to a restaurant for years and then they redecorate it. Mm. Um, I hate change. And so, <laughs> so one of the things is that, you know, we will change probably very little here. Yeah. And if, as I said, everybody stops coming, then I'll sit here on my own and I'll watch the films. Right. Well, it is just, it's an amazing clubhouse. That's yeah. the really, that's, that's the great. thing that is wonderful about it. Can you say a little bit about, about how people outside of Thailand might be able to, other than, than, uh, than stealing it? Uh, from the internet, <laughs> how can people find how can people find your film, or will are you planning on taking it to festivals abroad? I am not allowed contractually to say anything about that. Really, <laughs> what a mystery! Interesting. Um, but I suppose I can say that hopefully by the end of the year it will be available for everybody to watch worldwide. Excellent. Okay, okay. I like that. <laughs> Excellent. You mean that guy? That guy in the in the in the seat in the back there? <laughs> that, that, dark, that dark seat. The, uh... How can people find out about uh, the Freeze Green Club or your films online? What's the best way to do that? Facebook's always a good start. We have a website as well for the club, which is fgc.in.th, um, and our Facebook page for the forest is the forest, the film, one word. Awesome. Great. Well, we're, we're really excited for the premiere uh, in a couple of days. And uh, just thank you so much for taking the time to, to do this interview and to let us record here from time to time. Thank so, you. And if you, you could so much, send, do you have a way of getting this to the, to the, um, the people from the other planets about my offer to them? <laughs> oh, yes. No, we have a, we have a direct line. Uh, we just, we, we actually, we've, uh, I'm growing some of the, the vine at oh. my house and I just, mm -hmm. I'm going to wrap it around the uh, modem. <laughs> 
Why uh-huh. not just sit go straight? I, I am available. I don't charge much, and I'm very happy to be an eager collaborator. <laughs> <laughs> and be eaten last. <laughs> be eaten last. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank Paul. you. Yeah. Thanks. So if you listened to last season, you know that at this point in the podcast, we would normally kind of do a little debrief on the interview and sort of connect, try to connect a little bit of that sort of larger narrative about about Thai art. And maybe we'll we'll stumble into doing that. But I just I really want to go to like what you what you set up before the interview. What did it get you thinking about? Like, did it did it did it give you a sense of like a way forward? Did it clarify anything for you? Talking to Paul made me feel a little bit a little bit hopeful. Actually, um, there was a moment where we were just sitting there. We had just finished wrapping up the interview, and uh, we walked downstairs from the theater to the bar. We got a picture of him in front of his place, and I thought he looks pretty content. I was looking at that. I was looking at that photo later. Like he seems pretty content. And then just that, there was one bit where he says there he he has no plans to change the place. It's gonna be. Right. Yeah, we asked him that question about like, yeah, and how we just did this out of self gratification, and so I thought, okay, uh, maybe I could have something here in Thailand that I feel content with, Mm -hmm. so content I don't need, I feel any pressure to change it. Mm -hmm. He seems to have a pretty good grip on things. He he's he's completely aware of the problems here, and he hasn't become jaded about it. So maybe no, he hasn't. That's true. No, he hasn't. And no. so, like, maybe. Do you think that's just like temperamental, or do you think? I think, think it, I think it, it comes from being content or at peace with oneself, hmm. and then it allows you to look at things outside that might be terrible, and just be able to keep moving forward without it like hmm. <laughs> completely disrupting right. your your day. Currently, I'm not there. Um, I see. Yeah. I see. Like a, if I see some injustice anywhere, I'm just ready to like. That's it. You know. Mm. Bring on the Martian overlords. We're done. It's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, not not you can, Paul. You can yeah. appear in there in his promotional videos as well. <laughs> exactly. You can be the. Uh, you exactly. can be in front of the camera. He'll be behind the camera. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm here to serve. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting that his wife is Thai. Yeah. And they collaborated on this film together. Mm-hmm. Which sounds like an amazing process. That sounds great. And they run the the Free Screen Club together. Mm-hmm. His family is here. Mm-hmm. He's invested here. Yeah. He works with he's he's wor- he's worked with Thai creators. He's worked he works with the Thai film board. Mm-hmm. Um, he's making films in Thai. Yeah. And Isan dialect. So he's clearly in, invested here. And and yet, as you say, he doesn't he doesn't he seems content and he doesn't allow the um the rough edges of this place to get to him and it's i don't know i mean i guess i'm just gonna because we we sometimes would do would do this in the first season mm-hmm. sort of throw it back at the u.s right yeah, is yeah. it just like the same is it just the same thing is it just right. that like i mean i'm you know i'm planning on moving back to mm-hmm. the u.s when we can when we when we find the right way to have that happen yeah. and i know that like it seems like things have gotten worse but also i think when you're outside of your own country you can see the yeah. problems a little bit more clearly and i can see like my own my own privilege a little bit more clearly. And I feel, I feel ashamed at things that mm-hmm. I wasn't seeing before um, that I, that I can now see. So when I move, when I move back, I think, I think it will be hard to adjust back into a climate that is in many ways ugly and 
uh, atrocious mm-hmm. uh, for for ma- for many Americans, and that will be hard. But I guess like I will hopefully find a way to be content in the right yeah. ways, like content artistically, not content with the status quo. Exactly. Yeah. Though though it is different for him, right? Because he's not yeah. like he's not a Thai citizen. Yeah. So I don't I don't know how that I don't know how that how that works, but. But I'm yeah, glad I gave yeah. you hope. That's oh, yeah. yeah. So we'll keep talking to people. Um, Maybe we can get answers. <laughs> yeah. I guess I will say that that I respected how he, with this new film, with The Forest, he seems very conscious of how he knows that he's a foreigner, but yeah. he's been here long enough that he has seems to feel like he has an, enough of a grasp on yep. certain aspects of the place and of how to, to and the and the people to create a story, right? To yeah. create a story not about a Westerner in Isan, right? Right, yeah. but like, but about like about young people, yes, totally. about about teachers um, in this in the, in that part of the world, and to have that confidence to tell those stories. Mm. And I'm I'm envious of that. I'm yeah. envious of that. I'm envious of of, of yeah. and it's not like it's, again it's, again it's not blind confidence. It's not yeah. it's not ignorant. It's not. Um, it's incredibly respectful. I regard it as incredibly mm-hmm. respectful, as as he says when the film opens. You know, he's very curious to see like what the Thai critics and what yeah. Thai um, audiences think. But I'm envious. I mean, I'm envious that he has that confidence. I'm also envious that he has that relationship to Thailand. Yes. So I would I would imagine that some some Thais will still just regard him as like who is this foreigner? <laughs> yeah. Who is this uppity foreigner? Yeah. Who's this Pizza Hut director coming in here, you know, making uh, yeah. making films about our country uh, the same way that, you know, yeah. de Tocqueville came to the, yeah. the U.S. right now. There'd be like, mo- you know, like most Americans would be like, get him out of here. I don't care how incisive his observations might be on our democracy. Exactly. You're French. Um, so uh, how about you? Anything just for your own work? Right now I'm working on the next thing. And so I'm working on a short story collection that's all about received stories and so every story in the collection is written from the perspective of somebody drastically different than myself Mm. so one of the things i admired about the forest was how paul approached this culture and this this population with respect and i just hope to sort of mirror that in my own work as well Mm. um just yeah to be to produce something that felt as honest and respectful of the subject matter as what Paul made. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I feel like that's that's a pretty good goal. Yeah, it's a pretty good goal. So it was awesome interviewing Paul at his Freeze Green Club, uh, and we wanted to thank him for giving us so much of his time. Um, you can find links to um, more about his his films and uh, about the Free Screen Club um, on our website, poetinbangkok.com. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like the podcast, please consider giving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us find new listeners across the globe. And if you like what we're doing and want to support us, uh, go to patreon.com slash poetinbangkok uh, or follow the link from our website. That support would be really wonderful. Thanks to everyone who's been listening to the podcast and has written us about it, supported us on Patreon. Um, Thanks to those who have said nice things about us online. You're the best. We appreciate it. Uh, Thanks to Anna and Pete for their support and to Isotope for the great sound editing software. Thanks to Martin Pavlinich and his band Reports for our music. And thanks again to everyone at the Academy 
I'm Paul Nui at the Freeze Green Club. Tell your friends about us, whether they're into comics, poetry, filmmaking, rock bands, or just quirky podcasts in this era of missions to Mars. And whether you live in Bangkok or Taos, Fort Lauderdale or San Juan, Phobos or Diamos, we hope you'll keep listening to what we get up to here on Poet in Bangkok. Later, guys. We'll see you next time.